Chapter 12 I was there, Ganapati, I was there, crowding with him into the third-class railway carriage, which was all he would agree to travel in, jostling past the sweat-stained workers with their pathetic yet precious bundles containing all they possessed in the world, the flat-nosed, white-breasted women with rings around their nostrils, the red-shirted porters with their numbered brass armbands bearing steel trunks on their cloth-swathed heads, the water-vendors shouting, Hindu Pani, Musulman Pani, into our ears, for in those days even water had a religion, indeed probably has a caste too, braving the ear-splitting shrieks of the hawkers, of the passengers, of the relatives who had come to bid them goodbye, of the beggars who were crashing in on the traveller's last-minute anxiety to appease the gods with charity, and finally of the guards' whistles. Yes, Ganapati, I was there, propelling the half-naked crusader into the compartment as our iron-wheeled, rust-headed, steam-spouting Vahana clanged and wheezed into life and heaved us noisily forward into history. Motihari was like so many other districts in India. Large, dry, full of ragged humans eking out a living from land which had seen too many pitiful scratchings on its unyielding surface. There was starvation in Motihari, not just because the land did not produce enough for its tillers to eat, but because it could not, under the colonialist laws, be entirely devoted to keeping them alive. Three-tenths of every man's land had to be consecrated to indigo, since the British needed cash crops more than they needed wheat. This might not have been so bad had there been some profit to be had from it, but there was none. For the indigo had to be sold to the British planters at a fixed price, fixed, that is, by the buyer. Ganga saw the situation with eyes that for all his idealism had too long been accustomed to the palace of Hastinapur. He saw men whose fatigue burrowed into their eyes and made hollows of their cheeks. He saw women dressed day after day in the same dirty sari because they did not possess a second one to change into while they washed the first. He saw children without food, books or toys, snot-nosed little creatures whose distended bellies mocked the emptiness within. And he went into the planters' club and saw the English and Scots in their dinner jackets and ballroom gowns, their laughter tinkling through the notes of the club piano as waiters bearing overladen trays circled their flower-bedecked tables. He saw all this from outside, for the dark Christian hall porter who guarded the club's facial character denied him entry. He stood on the steps of the clubhouse for a long while, his eyes burning through the plate-glass windows of the dining room, while a uniformed watchman came out, took him by the arm and asked him brusquely to move on. I expected Ganga to react sharply, to push the man away or at least to remove the other's grip on his arm. But I had again underestimated him. He simply looked at the offender. One look was enough. The watchman dropped his hand, instantly ashamed, eyes downcast, and Ganga walked quietly down the steps. The next morning, he announced his protest campaign. And what a campaign it was, Ganapati. It is in the history books now, and today's equivalents of the snot-nosed brats of Motihari have to study it for their examinations on the nationalist movement. But what can the dull black-on-white of their textbook tell them of the heady excitement of those days? of walking through the parched fields to the huts of the poorest men and listen to their sufferings and tell them of their hopes, of holding public hearings in the villages, 
where peasants could come forth and speak for the first time of the iniquity of their lives. To people who would do something about it, of openly defying the indigo laws as Ganga himself wrenched free the first indigo plant and sowed a fistful of grain in its stead. Even we who were with him then were conscious of the dawn of a new epoch. Students left their classes in the city colleges to flock to Gangaji's side. Small town lawyers abandoned the security of the regular fees of, at the Assizes to volunteer for the cause. Journalists left the empty debating halls of the nominating council chambers to discover the real heart of the new politics. A nation was rising, with a small, balding, semi-clad saint at its head. Imagine it for yourself, Ganapati. Frail, bespectacled Gangaji, defying the might of the British Empire, going from village to village, proclaiming the right of the people to live rather than grow die. I can see him in my mind's eye even now, setting out on a rutted rural road on the back of a gently swaying elephant. For elephants were as common a means of transport in Motihari as bullock carts elsewhere. Looking for all the world as comfortable as he would on the back of the Hastinapur Rolls Royce as he led our motley procession in our quest for justice. It is hot, but there it is a spasmodic warm breeze touching the brow like a puff of breath from a dying dragon. From his makeshift howdah, Ganga smiles at passing peasants, at the farmers bent over their ploughs, even at the horse carriage that trundles up to overtake him, with its frantically waving figure in the back flagging him down. Ganga's elephant rumbles to a halt. The man in the carriage alights and thrusts a piece of paper at the ex-regent, who bends myopically to look at it before sliding awkwardly down the side of his mount. For it is a message from the district police. Banning him from proceeding further on his journey and directing him to report to the police station. Panic? Fear? There is none of it. Ganga smiles even more broadly from the back of the returning carriage and we follow him cheerfully, bolstered by the courage of his convictions. Gangaji enters the police thana with us milling behind him. The man in uniform does not seem pleased, either with us or with the piece of paper in front of him. It is my duty, he says, taking in the appearance and attire of the former regent of Hastinapur, with scarcely concerned disbelief. To serve your notice, to desist from any further activities in this area and to leave Motihari by the next train. And it is my duty, responds Ganga equably, to tell you that I do not propose to comply with your notice. I have no intention of leaving the district until my inquiry is finished. Inquiry? asked the astonished policeman. What inquiry? My inquiry into the social and economic conditions of the people of Modihari, replies Ganga, which you have so inconveniently interrupted this morning. Ah, Ganapati, the glorious cheek of it. Ganga is committed to trial, and you cannot imagine the crowds outside the courthouse as he appears, bowing and smiling and waving folded hands as his public. He's a star, hairless, bony, enema-taking, toilet-cleaning Ganga, with his terrible vow of celibacy and his habit of arranging other people's marriages. He's a star. The trial opens. The crowds shouting slogans outside, the heat even more oppressive inside the courtroom than under the midday sun. The police standing restlessly to attention outside the courthouse gate, some helmeted in the heat and mounted on riot control horses, cannot take it any longer. Their commander, a red-faced young officer from the Cotswolds, 
orders them to charge the peaceful but noisy protesters. They wade in, iron shot, hoops and steel-tipped staves flailing. The crowd does not resist, does not stampede, does not flee. Ganga has told us how to behave and there are volunteers among the crowd to ensure that we maintain the discipline that he has taught us. So we stand and the blows rain down upon us, on our shoulders, our bodies, our heads. But we take them unflinchingly. Blood flows but we stand there. Bones break but we stand there. Lathis make the dull sound of wood pulping flesh and we still stand there. Till the policeman and the young red-faced officer, red now on his hands and in his eyes as well, red flowing in his heart and down his conscience, realize that something is happening they have never faced before. You think I'm simply exaggerating, don't you, Ganapati? The hyperbole of the old, the heroism of the nostalgic, that's what you think it is. You can't now, you with your ration cards and your black markets and the cynical materialism of your generation, believe what it was like in those days, what it felt like to discover a cause, to belong to a crusade, to believe. But I can, don't you see? I can lean here on these damned lumpy bolsters and look at your disbelieving porcine eyes and be there outside the courtroom at Motihari as the Lathis fall and the men stand proud and upright for their dignity, while inside, surprise, surprise, the prosecution asks for an adjournment. Yes, the prosecution, Ganapati. It is the government pleader, sweating all over his brief, who stumbles towards the bench and asks the trial to be postponed. But hello, what's this? The accused will have none of it. The magistrate is on the verge of acquiescing in the request when Gangaji calls out from the dock. There is no need to postpone the hearing, my lord. I wish to plead guilty. Consternation in the court. There is a hubbub of voices. The magistrate bangs his ineffectual gavel. Gangaji is speaking again. A silence descends as people strain to hear his reedy voice. My lord, I have indeed disobeyed the order to leave Motihari. I wish simply to read a brief statement on my own behalf and I am willing to accept whatever sentence you may wish to impose on me. The magistrate looks wildly around him for a minute, as if hoping for guidance, either divine or official, but none is forthcoming. You may proceed, he said at last to the defendant, for he does not know what else to say. Gangaji smiles beatifically pushes his glasses further up, back up his nose, and withdraws from the folds of his loincloth a crumpled piece of paper covered in spiky, cramped writing, which he proceeds to smooth out against the railing of the dock. My statement, he says simply to the magistrate, and then holds it up closely up to his face and proceeds to read it aloud. I have entered the district, he says, and the silence is absolute as every year strains to catch his words. In order to perform a humanitarian service in response to a request from the peasants of Modihari, who feel they have not been treated fairly by the administration, which defends the interests of the indigo planters. I could not render any useful service to the community without first studying the problem, which is precisely what I have been attempting to do. I should, in the circumstances, have expected the help of the local administration and the planters in my endeavours for the common good, but regrettably, this has not been forthcoming. The magistrate's eyes are practically popping out at this piece of mild-mannered effrontery, but Ganga goes obliviously on. 
I am here in the public interest and do not believe that my presence can pose any danger to the peace of the district. I can claim indeed to have considerable experience in matters of governance, albeit in another capacity. Ganga's tone is modest, but his reference is clear. The judge shifts uncomfortably in his seat. The air inside the courtroom is as still as in a cave. The pankhawala squatting on the floor with his hand on the rope of the fan is too absorbed to remember to pull it. As a law-abiding citizen, and here Gangaji looks innocently up to the near-apoplectic judge, my first instinct upon receiving an instruction from the authorities to seize my activities would normally have been to obey. However, this instinct clashed with a higher instinct to respect my obligation to the people of Motihari who I am here to serve. Between obedience to the law and obedience to my conscience, I can choose only the latter. I am perfectly prepared, however, to face the consequences of my choice and to submit without protest to any punishment you may impose. This time it is our turn, the turn of his supporters and followers to gaze at him in dismayed concern. The prospect of glorious defiance was one thing, the thought of our Gangaji submitting to the full rigours of the law was quite another. Unlike its post-independence variant, with its bribal warrants and clubbable guards, the British prison in India was not a place anyone would have liked to know from the inside. In the interests of the justice and of the cause I am here to serve, Gangaji continues, I refuse to obey the law to leave Motihari. A pause while he looks directly at the magistrate and willingly accept the penalty for my act. I wish, however, through this statement to reiterate that my disobedience emerges not from any lack of respect for lawful authority, but in obedience to a higher law, the law of duty. There is silence, Ganapati. Pin drops silence. Gangaji folds his sheet of paper and puts it away amidst the folds of his scanty garment. He speaks again to the magistrate. I have made my statement. You no longer need to postpone the hearing. The magistrate opens his mouth to speak, but no words come out. He looks helplessly at the government pleader, who by now is completely soaked in his own sweat and in a kind of despair at this complacent defendant. At last, the judge clears his throat, his voice emerges, a strained croak. <clears throat> I shall postpone judgment, he announces with a bang of his gavel. The court is adjourned. There are cheers from the assembled throng as the meaning of that decision becomes clear. The magistrate does not know what to do. We carry Ganga out on our bloodied shoulders. The horses draw back, neighing. The soldiers withdraw, shamed by the savagery of their success. The fallen stagger to their feet, and our hero, hearing the adulation of the crowd, borne aloft in a crescendo of hope, our hero weeps as he sees how his principles have been upheld by the defenseless. Ah, Ganapati what we could not have achieved in those days. The magistrate was right not to want to proceed, for when reports of what had happened reached the provincial capital, immediate instructions came from the lieutenant governor to drop all charges. Not only that, the local administration was ordered to assist Gangaji fully with his inquiry. Can you imagine that? The Satyagrahi comes to a district, clamours for justice, refuses an order to leave, makes his defiances public, and so shames the oppressors that they actually cooperate with him in exposing their own misdeeds. What a technique it was, Ganapati. For it worked. That was the beauty of it. It worked to redress the basic problem. 
after interviews with the peasants and hearing conducted with the actual participation of district officialdom and the submission of sworn statements, the lieutenant governor appointed Gangaji to an official inquiry committee which unanimously, unanimously, can you imagine, recommended the abolition of the system which lay at the root of the injustice. The planters were ordered to pay compensation to the poor peasants they had exploited. The rule requiring indigo to be planted was rescinded. Gangaji's disobedience had won. Yes, Ganapati, the tale of the Motihari peasants had a happy ending. That was the wonder of Gangaji. What he did in Motihari, he and his followers reproduced in a hundred little towns and villages across India. Naturally, he did not always receive the same degree of cooperation from the authorities. As his methods became better known, Ganga encountered more resistance. He found magistrates less easily intimidated and provision, provincial governors less compliant. On such occasions, he went unprotestingly to jail, invariably shaming his captors into an early release. All this was not just morally right, Ganapati, as I cannot stress enough, it worked. Where sporadic terrorism and moderate constitutionalism had both proved ineffective, Ganga took the issue of freedom to the people as one of simple right and wrong, law versus conscience, and gave them a method to which the British had no response. By abstaining from violence, he wrested the moral advantage. By breaking the law non-violently, he showed up the injustice of the law. By accepting the punishments the law imposed on him, he confronted the colonialists with their own brutalization. And when faced with some transcendent injustice, whether in jail or outside, some wrong that his normal methods could not right, he did not abandon non-violence, but directed it against himself. Yes, against himself, Ganapati. Gangaji would startle us all with his demonstration of the lengths to which he was prepared to go in defense of what he considered to be right. As you may well ask, and I shall tell you, but not just yet, my impatient amenuensis. As the Bengalis say when offered cod, we still have other fish to fry. <laughs>